Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. Their libations of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices and my body also dwells secure for you do not give up your godly one to see corruption or let him see the pit. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If that's true, in your presence is fullness of joy. There's no fuller than full. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's no longer than forever. Full and forever. If that's true, then there's no other place to be than there. And, and in worship, we want to go there. That's where we want to go. Worship leaders help people get there, to that place, full, full satisfaction and and forever. Raise your hand one more time if you're this category, that you have some responsibility for leading worship at your church. Raise your hand if you're in that category. Okay, thank you. About a third of you maybe, maybe more. I feel in your presence really inadequate for this, um, I've never done that. I've never done what Bob just did. I love to sing, but I'm glad people are singing with me when I sing because you wouldn't want me at a microphone. But, oh, my. I, I've said to our people many times, and I think it's still true, that consistently the highest joys of my life are standing right where I was standing with the with the worship of my people cascading over my head. God does more work on my marriage at those moments, on my fathering, on my witness, breaks me there more than any other place, reminds me of the horrors of bad attitudes there. I'm just, don't know how you are, where where you feel most fingered by the Lord as, as a failure. I feel it in worship. Worship is a paradox to me. I feel most cognizant of my sin there and most hope-filled there. We did the communion the other night. Kenny led us here on Saturday night and Noel was with me that night. Talitha wasn't, felt real special. Communion ought to be special. There should be a a powerful vertical thing going on as we 
commune and fellowship with the risen Christ, remembering what he did until he comes. And there should be powerful horizontal affections going on in those moments. And if there's brokenness there, that ought to be fixed. That's why we test ourselves. And, and just as he finished, I, I, I just leaned over to Noel, took her hand and I said, I love you. That was real sexy. In the holiest way I can imagine saying those words. Just totally God at that moment sweetening my affections for the wife of 43 years. And a hundred other things happened on that bench right there. (laughs) So if you're responsible for helping make this happen, that's a big Glorious calling. So the, another reason I feel inadequate since I haven't done it is that I'm just so aware of how little I'm going to be able to say in these five hours. I think, oh, big books have been written on this. He wrote one and you've read five of them and I haven't read any of them probably. And I just read my Bible and try to figure out what it says and then talk and and which means I, I, it's really, so I want to just make sure you know there's going to be a lot of important things I'm not going to say, okay? This is a, a slice of John Piper's experience with worship and the Bible. That, and I'm limited and time is limited and, and where I've looked is limited. And so don't have too big expectation here, okay? Just... If I could just say a few things, and really, that's the way my life works. I don't know a lot of things about a lot of things. I know a a few really, really important things about a few really, really important people. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, And if you know a few things really deeply, really well, they just totally grip you, it really will make your life fruitful. Don't worry about knowing too much. Just know, know deeply and know well what's true and big and all-encompassing. Let's start by reflecting on the title of the seminar. I'm going to talk, and maybe, maybe I'll let you ask a question here and there, but we'll see. Um, I'm going to talk until about 9.05, so if you need to get up and leave for any reason. That's fine. I'll understand because that's a long time to to sit there. Tomorrow we'll take a break in the middle, but tonight we won't. So here we go. Some thoughts about the title of, of the course. Why this title, Gravity and Gladness, the Pursuit of God in Corporate Worship? Let's start with the word corporate and think about that for a minute. Corporate is our focus. There are other kinds of worship. We may allude to them, but it's not our focus. Not private or family, but the essence is the same. There are unique things that happen in corporate worship for the glory of God. I I never want to overstate the case for corporate worship. Like it's more important than a life of worship, Romans 12, 1 to 2. I wouldn't say that. More important than... Husband, wife, children, daily worshiping, I wouldn't say that. 
more important than you alone on your knees with your Bible before God? I wouldn't say that. I'd just say it's unique. There's some things that go on in it that are really good and you don't want to miss. I would even say probably essential. So here is an example of the effect of corporate. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So here's an embattled soul, aching for God, put upon by his enemies. And here's how his soul moves, verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So what does he remember in his embattled solitude while he's surrounded by adversaries? What does he remember? He remembers corporate worship. He remembers a throng. He remembers a procession. He remembers a house. He remembers shouts and songs of praise. He remembers a multitude keeping festival. And the very memory of it has a power. The next verse, I should have included it. Um, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's preaching to himself on the basis of this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Shall I, I shall again praise him, my hope and my God. The very memory. I have stepped away from ministry, sometimes in vacation, sometimes in writing leave, five-month sabbatical, eight-month leave of absence. I've stepped away many times over the years where the memory of this room, been in here for 20 years this summer. We built this building in 1991. Before that, I got memories of another building. But 20 years of meeting God here with my people It's just unbelievably full of sweetness to me. And so when I'm away, this happens. There are unique things that minister minister to us as persons that go on. It's always bi-directional, right? It's always bi-directional. If it ever ceases to be bi-directional, it's either not Godward or it's not congregational. Bidirectional, it's always vertical. And I just, I want to take the American church and shout at the top of my lungs, go vertical. Lay off the horizontal for a while. One hour a week is not too long to ask people to get serious about vertical. It's just not too much time. The whole world is jerking them around to be horizontal, to be funny and chatty and lovable and kind and gentle and talk, 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 talk. Funny, 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 funny. Can we just have one hour a week where we rivet on God, rivet on God? Just everything in the service, just pushing vertical all the time. The welcome is going vertical. The announcements are going vertical. The music is going vertical. The confession, everything, the scriptures. And yet, well, we're together. Look at this. There's people in here. And as soon as you've got two people together or 100 people together, they know the other people are going vertical. 
It affects me when Tom Steller or David is at my side singing heartily or at a moment when my mind just checked out, their hand goes up. And I say, whoops, where am I? Obviously not where they are. I'm thinking about whether I can say Psalm 16 by heart. The, the horizontal dimension is huge. It's real. There's no denying it. It's important that we believe in it. Something happens to us from the people around us connecting vertically. And it's a, it's a kind of thing that you can't quantify. It does things in you for him and for her. That's congregational thinking. Just some thoughts about why, why that focus? Now, the word pursuit is in the title. Pursuit. Should we think this way about worship? Is God not pursuing us? Why do you say we pursue him? Why, why would you even put that in the title? Sounds like too much us. Yeah, he, yes, he pursues us. You did not choose me. I chose you. God didn't let send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved, he came after us. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Yes, 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 that's true. But this is true too. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I'm after that with blood earnestness. This is no casual thing. I want to, I want to help my people on Saturday get ready to do the, this dogged search on Sunday morning. I'm after you. I will not rest until I have you. I must have you. I must meet you. I must. I can't live without you. That's the flavor. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. So get get a good start on Saturday. And then do it corporately on Sunday or whenever your services are, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I want to help the people get there. Most people don't come into worship services there. They don't. You can tell by the chatter. So we need to help them get there and chiding them won't help them. The key is to get these two, God's pursuit of me and my pursuit of him in the right order. The first yields the second. Depend on the first, his pursuit of me. For the second, my pursuit of him. Here's three texts that point there. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Oh, press on. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's got to be one of my 
Christian life defining favorites. The Christian life is a race. It's a pursuit. Sunday morning is the vertical dimension of that. Big time, I am, I am stretching, I'm leaning, I'm pursuing, I'm agonizing, I'm striving, I'm pushing in. If that sounds like work to you, it, it's, it's not that way. It's like a deer pants for the flowing streams. And this is what relieves you. I'm doing it because he made me his own. Prior to my quest for him is that he took me already and made me his. If I have it reversed, I'm not a Christian yet. Or I'm becoming a legalist, one or the other. But we, we say to him, I want you because you've got me by the scruff of the neck. I picture myself dangling a lot like this. Like God's just dangling me like this. But I'm not hugging him. He's just holding me. He won't let me drop. He, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Those of me called, he justified. Those of me justified, he glorified. Look at that. He did it. Not going to let me drop. I don't, where is he? So there is a gospel way to seek God. There is a profoundly contented way to express your discontent at not having enough of him. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So work it out. God is at work. His work is prior. This word for means that. Whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies. So a lot of service goes up on this platform. We have drums and guitars and piano and an organ back there and singers up here in a choir back there. And a lot of serving is going on here. And then the people in the service of worship are here serving. What does that mean? It means we're always receiving. The one who serves, do it by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may get the glory. The principle here is real simple. The giver gets the glory. If you put put yourself in the position of a giver, the benefactor of God... You take away his glory. God will be the giver. We, we have a prayer room downstairs. We gather there to pray 30 minutes, four 30 minutes before every service. It's the key to my hope as I come up here to preach that I've been prayed over for 30 minutes and we've sought God about many things in the service and in the church. And, and usually somebody quotes this right here. Here we go, Lord. It's time. Here we go. And we go in the strength. We go. We go. Our wills are using. He's losing. His legs are moving. His mind is working. We are doing. Do, do, do. Yes, we are. In the strength that you are supplying so that you might get the glory from him, through him, and to him are all things. Just got to build that into your people. And in yourself, it's the way to live at all moments, but especially in the service 
of worship. Two more words in the title, gravity and gladness. Why? For the Lord spoke thus with me, this is Isaiah 8, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, let that sink in, because it's going to, otherwise you won't get the next phrase. Don't be afraid of anything the world is afraid of. Disease, war, criminal crime in the neighborhood, don't be afraid of what the world is afraid of. But, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy or sanctify. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Sounds scary, but, and he will become a sanctuary. That's weird. That is awesome. I mean, there's the key right there. I mean, if you get that, if you can bring some taste of that on Sunday morning, that's it. It is it is a fearless people. It's just unlike the world. Money is not losing money, losing job, trouble, trouble, trouble in the world. It's just not what they're afraid of. That's a free people. God is big, wise, strong, holy, unapproachable fire. You better be afraid of him. Don't mess with him. Don't treat him lightly. Don't get smart alecky with him. And if you don't, if there's this reverential, trembling awe and fear in his presence, he becomes a sanctuary for you. So there's my favorite illustration of Karsten and the German shepherd. Dick Teagan invited Noel and me to his house. First year I was here, 1980. I had a, my oldest son was seven. And he stood when we opened the door, eye to eye with the biggest dog he'd ever seen. And he looked up at me and I looked at Dick and Dick said, not a problem, he's he's fine. This dog's safe. It's okay, Karsten. He says, it's okay. Just one one error and your face is gone. No. <laughs> but I didn't say that. As we walked in, we remembered that we left something in the car. And I said, oh, Carson, would you run get the bag? And Carson goes running across the lawn. And this dog goes, behind him. And this is terrifying. The dog's as tall as you are, and he's got this deep growl. And Dick Teagan leans out the door and says, Oh, Karsten, maybe you ought to walk. He doesn't like it when people run away from him. I said, That's in the sermon next Sunday. And it's been in a hundred times since then. Do you get this? Do you get what the fear of the Lord is? Maybe you better not run away from him. He might bite you. You better turn and just hug him. Put your arm around him and walk to the car. 
Best illustration I've gotten in 30 years for what it means to fear God. Fearing God means fearing leaving Him. Fearing finding anything other than Him more satisfying than He is. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God when what you want is something else. I want a new iPad. That's what I want, you know. I don't want, I want another Bible. I don't want a sermon. I don't want power in my life. I just want another toy. That's a scary thing in the presence of God. Really scary. So uh, there's gravity in worship. If this, if this text makes any sense, which I think it does very deeply, don't be afraid of what the world fears. You know, maybe I better, let me point you to another text in Exodus 20. Some of you know this text. It's just so amazingly confirming and paradoxical like this. This is Exodus 20, 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. All you have to fear is fear itself. Although that would be a different context, wouldn't it? And yet that's what he's saying. Don't fear what man fears. One more, gladness. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. I don't... uh, Authentic worship increases in proportion to how exceeding God is our joy. If he's a little bit your joy, your worship will be a little bit. And as your joy in him becomes more consuming and other joys take their proper place, your worship will rise with its intensity and its authenticity. And helping your church find the balance here and Maybe just a practical word. One of the most frustrating things is to have staff that aren't on the same page. And some of you come from situations like that. So you've got a senior pastor who may be a clown. And you're the worship leader and you want so bad for the people to know what serious joy is. Not clownish joy. Serious joy. Deep joy. Powerful joy. Life-changing joy. Tasted with gospel songs. And he's always yucking it up. He's just always clowning around. Telling pun after pun and alluding to one TV show after the other. And and you're sitting there thinking, God, what am I going to do? How can I survive this? Maybe you can't. But you, you, you pray like crazy. You discuss with him whether he even believes there is a kind of joy that's different than 
clownish, glib, funny, 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 lighthearted. That just I, I I try sometimes in settings to say what I'm saying right now, and the only category that some people have to respond is you're talking about boring. That's that's the only thing they know. It, it is. Chipper and funny equals joyful and happy. Serious, boring. That's, those are the only categories they have. And so you, if you try to say something like this, will we'll simply mean, oh, you, you want it to be everybody's, everybody's sitting there like this, everybody's solemn, everybody's bored. And, and you want to say... No, it's not the way it is at a wedding, usually. You have to tell jokes at a wedding to make people happy. So, um, let's pray for each other. Let's ask God to sweep through. You know, maybe the pastor who has the heart for vertical gravity and gladness and it's the worship leader who's silly, doesn't know anything but the old way. I say old because I grew up with song leaders. Everybody stand up. Smile this time. Let's do verse three again. uh, Hug somebody on verse four. We're going to make this happen. We're going to make horizontal camaraderie in this church happen. We're going to get people to love each other no matter what it takes. This is just utterly counterproductive. This is just not what the gospel and what the seriousness of of the Bible is about. Okay, that's that's introduction to why did I title it that way. Um, I'm I'm tempted to just stop and see if there's just a one burning question, and I'm only going to wait ten more seconds. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Good. Maybe. Maybe not. The, the next thing, if you have your little sheet here, um, is number two, the intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. Um, Jason French, are you here? Okay, because I, yeah, okay, so all the worship leaders are here. I saw two of you, but I didn't see Jason. You're sitting right there by Chuck. How did I miss you? So I want, I want you guys... You guys mind if I identify you? Because Dan, wave your hand. So Dan's north. Chuck, wave your hand. Downtown. Jason, that's south. So those are three full-time lead worshipers here at Pastors for Worship here at Bethlehem. So if you want they to, didn't, they didn't get paid for this, and they probably will be mad that I said this, but you want to ask them questions, go ahead. <laughs> Later. <laughs> the intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. So this is going to be a biblical study now for the next half hour or so, the biblical study of what becomes of worship as you move from the Old to the New Testament and the New Testament setting certain uh, trajectories for 21st century corporate worship. So that's where we're going now. So here's my thesis The essential, vital, indispensable, defining heart of worship is the experience, and that's huge, 
huge commitment that I'm making right there. The experience, I mean real inside experience of being satisfied with God because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So this is a fateful choice if you make it. That right there. That the defining, and by heart here, I don't mean your heart, I mean essence of the act. The defining essence or heart of worship is the experience of being satisfied with God or all that God is for you in Jesus, if you want to keep it Christological, which is good to do. Sometimes I say it that way, sometimes I, I infer it. The experience of being satisfied with God. And the reason that is worship is because God is glorified when we are satisfied with God. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So that's the thesis of my life and the thesis of my every seminar I give, sort of. Problem. This involves a fairly radical simplification or narrowing of the focus from what is often included under the term worship. And please don't overstate what I tried not to. When I say the heart or essence of worship, I don't mean the totality of worship. Okay? I think hands lifted, hands clapping, voice singing, voice confessing, voice preaching, and other more outward manifestations of this are also worship if they are vitally connected with this. When they cease to be vitally connected with this, they come under the indictment, this people honors me with their lips, their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me. I don't call that worship. Vain worship is zero worship. Worship, cancel, not there. As soon as this heart experience goes away, worship goes away. The acts may continue, the singing may continue, the preaching may continue. But worship isn't happening anymore. So I'm not saying this is all that worship is. I'm saying where this is gone, there isn't any worship. That raises lots of questions. Hang on. We're going to spend a good bit of time on this. I I just assumed something, and let me say it out loud. We got over at this church, I think, a long time ago, ever talking about doing worship and then doing preaching. That's not the way we talk, because it's not the way we think or are. This is a worship service. That is, it is a congregational moment in the life of our people gathered to go vertical, to make much of God and Jesus Christ in the gospel. And there's singing parts to it and praying parts to it and welcoming parts to it and confessing parts to it and silent parts to it and preaching parts to it. So if you ask, what do you do when all that stops? I worship. I call it expository exaltation, E-X-U-L-T, exaltation. I take my Bible and I open it before glorious things 
and I exult over them. Do you see that? That's amazing. That's called worship. I'm doing it, and I hope they're being drawn into it. It's not a lecture. It's not mainly teaching, big teaching component. But preaching is mainly expository exaltation. So when I said a minute ago that if the heart disconnects, Jesus would pronounce his judgment on me. As I preach, he would say, that has ceased to be worship. Because you have ceased to rest in me, trust in me, enjoy me, delight in me, overflow with exultation at the wonderful things I've been showing you in my word. You just checked out. And that's possible in preaching or singing or anything else is check out. Now, here's, here's the problem. That is really narrow, really subjective, and the Bible seems to talk about worship bigger than the experience of being satisfied with God. So here's my aim, to show from the New Testament that this simplifying, narrowing tendency in talking about the heart of worship is biblical and in line with the Reformed Puritan tradition. And the reason I go there is not just because I am Reformed, but because that's the tradition that, that is most uncomfortable with what I'm saying here. A Wesleyan tradition would, would, would not stumble nearly as much over making this experience the essence of worship. But Reformed, ooh, ooh, that's subjective, you know. Jonathan Edwards got us into big trouble at that point with way too much subjectivism, and we need to, you know, pull things in. So I'm going to argue that historically that's not the case. In the New Testament, is the thesis, is a stunning degree of indifference to worship as an outward form and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart. I think you're going to be amazed, unless you've read and studied all this before. I was amazed at what I found in this regard. Here's some observations. In the New Testament, there is very little instruction that deals explicitly with corporate worship, what we call worship services. There were corporate gatherings. They were never called worship in the New Testament. Some people take this, I could name (laughs) groups, people, take this to say we should never call what we do on Sunday morning worship. New Testament doesn't, why should we? In fact, the effort to try to turn it into vertical worship is not New Testament because it's really edification. Let everything be done for oikomene, upbuilding, everything. And that's what we do. We gather to teach and to grow in the knowledge and the grace of God. Singing, that's just kind of a, we do that kind of, well, warm, warm up the audience or something, but it's just... The essence is right here. Information is being transferred. The Holy Spirit is illuminating the information. You're growing in the knowledge of God, and we just go out and change the world now. And and calling that worship and wanting these kinds of subjective experiences is just not biblical. There's significant groups that talk that way. So I'm going to argue against that. But I am going to concede this. 
They weren't called worship services in the New Testament. So 1 Corinthians 14.23 speaks of the whole church gathering together. Uh, Acts 2.46 speaks of the early church attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. You get the big group and the small group. Hebrews 10.25 speaks of not neglecting to meet together. James 2 pictures a, a service. Look, look, get a picture of this. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, so some, some, there's some getting together here, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit in the good place while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet. You, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So all I'm pointing to there is there's an assembly and people are welcome in from outside. Some guests come and something's going on. Acts 20, on the first day of the week. Interesting. That's Sunday, not Saturday. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Long service. Some kind of, some kind of togetherness. So I'm just pointing out there, there were gatherings of the early church, but we're not told much about what they did there. Questions? What becomes of the Old Testament use of the main word for worship. In Hebrew, hishtachavah. Its basic meaning is to bow down with a sense of reverence and respect and honor. It occurs 171 times in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. In the Greek, Old Testament, so the Hebrew is translated into the Septuagint, 164 of those 171 instances are translated by proskuneo. That's amazing. So pretty consistent translation of the, the main word for worship as proskuneo. In the Greek, this is the main word for worship, and, uh, but something astonishing appears in the, in the New Testament. Proskuneo is common in the Gospels. 26 times, people would often bow down worshipfully before Jesus. And it is common in the book of Revelation, 21 times, because the angels and the elders in heaven often bow down before God. But in the epistles of Paul, it occurs only once, namely in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, where the unbeliever falls down at the power of the prophecy and confesses God is in this assembly. It does not occur at all in Peter, James, John, in Hebrews 1, 6, and 11, 21. They're Old Testament quotations. And in Acts, here, 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 and here, 24, they don't refer to Christian worship at all. So, why are the very epistles that are written to help the church be what it ought to be in this age almost totally devoid of this word and of explicit teaching on the specifics of corporate worship? Really provocative question that I felt I needed an answer for years ago when I was first studying this. I think the reason is found in the way Jesus 
treated worship in his life and teaching. Jesus did something. Jesus talked in a way and acted in a way that, that killed the word proskuneo in the New Testament, just about. Why? What? What? For example, Mark eleven seventeen. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. When he wove a whip and drove out the money changers, the reason he gives is not for the sake of proper sacrifices, but for the sake of prayer. In other words, he focused attention away from outward acts of Jewish sacrifices to the personal act of communion with God for all peoples. Another example, Matthew Oops, I accidentally pushed a button. Uh-oh. I don't know which one I pushed. Camera or PC? I need a techie. Camera. Camera thank you very much. <laughs> it's like God, you know? Like, I wish it were always that clear. In Matthew twelve six. Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. Something greater than the temple. This was unbelievably offensive. In fact, it got Stephen killed. 1 John 2.19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. This attitude to the temple not only got him killed, It also got Stephen killed. That's how important it was. So Jesus was identifying himself as the true temple. And himself, in himself, he will fulfill everything the temple stood for, especially the place where believers meet God. So I'm that, he said. Not that building, me. You can see what's going on here. This is a a shifting of focus from from geography and externality and uh, ritual to a person, Jesus. So here again, he's diverting attention away from worship as a localized thing with outward forms to a personal spiritual experience with himself at the center. Worship does not need a building, a priesthood. A sacrificial system. It needs the risen Jesus. That's just huge. It's huge missiologically. I'll get back to this in a minute, but you can see maybe where, where I think the New Testament is going. If you were going to restrict your revelatory and saving work to an ethnic people for 2,000 years, everything makes sense in the Old Testament. Totally. As a lesson book for something else. But as soon as you say, You go make disciples of 16,000 languages and people, groups, and tribes. And you say, "Uh, how are we going to take the temple? What if they don't have sheep? How how can we do this? And so you can see what what Jesus is doing in his three years of life is he's he's just ending it all. He's just ending it all. That may be an overstatement, all, but you catch on. As we go, John 4.20 is the key to why the Old Testament word proskuneo did not fit the reality of the worship of Jesus that he was bringing. 
the woman at the well said, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say, Jews say, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, proskuneo. So there's that real common 171 or 164-time word in John. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're asking about where? Neither. Where's not the question anymore. But what is the question? An hour is coming, now is. All right, we got eschatological break-in here, right? It is coming. There's a kind of worship that's coming. My people will all be prophets. Sons and daughters will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is going to be coming a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's here, now, in this age. Now, when the true worshipers, there are other kinds, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people in the Father seeks to worship him, to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So here's the key sentence. True worship, which was anticipated for the age to come, has arrived. The hour is coming, and now is. And what marks this true worship that has broken into the present time from the glorious age to come, is that it is not bound by localized place or outward form. Instead of being in this mountain or in Jerusalem, it is in spirit and in truth. Notice the category shift. She wants, choose your locality, Jesus. Settle this dispute for us. Is it Jerusalem or is it the Samaritan mountain? And Jesus said, those aren't the questions anymore. It's not in a mountain, it's in the Spirit. It's not in Jerusalem, it's in truth. See, it just kind of, I mean, that just takes a, a mental, just the, the shift has to just completely turn around to questions of, is this worship in spirit? Is this worship in truth? Not, is it in a building? Or in the parking lot? Or in a movie theater? Or storefront? Wrong question. Is it in the Spirit? Is it in truth? That's what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing here is stripping proskuneo of its last vestiges of localized outward connotation. Not that it will be wrong for worship to be in a place or that it will be wrong for it to use outward forms. But rather, he's making explicit and central that this is not what makes worship worship. What makes worship worship is what happens in spirit and in truth, with or without place, with or without outward forms. And you can't do corporate worship without forms. So don't hear me being naive you must have form and you must agree on them or you're going to not come or walk out. Question, what do those two phrases in spirit and truth mean? I take in spirit to mean 
that this true worship is carried along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. There is argument about whether this is a big S or a little s. I'm going to have my cake and eat it. I do think, given the way John writes, there is, in fact, an intentional ambiguity and double meaning here. This happens repeatedly in the Gospel of John. So here's my understanding. Carried along by the Holy Spirit and is happening mainly as an inward spiritual event. That means having to do with my spirit governed by his spirit, not mainly as an outward bodily event. So if you ask me, what does in spirit mean? Do you think it means in the Holy Spirit or in your spirit? I would say yes, because it's useless if it's just in my spirit and not carried by the Holy Spirit. And it can't be carried by the Holy Spirit if it's not connected to my spirit. That's useless. It's out there flying around in the wind somewhere. It's, it's the coming together of God's spirit on my spirit, in my spirit, awakening my spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. What does that mean? What's the second spirit there? That which is born of the big S spirit is... Hmm. And my answer is, it's this. Namely, my spirit born by his spirit. My spirit enlivened by his spirit. My spirit indwelt by his spirit. Shaped by his spirit. That's what worship is when it's worship. Our spirits are awakened. They're made alive. They're engaged. And they're governed and shaped and carried. Lifted by the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural event is why the best musicians in the world can't make it happen. It's a miracle when the human spirit is made alive by the Holy Spirit. And it has nothing decisively to do with the excellence of the music. They are related because we are in the body. Talk more about that later. But it's not decisive. I take in truth to mean that this true worship is a response to true views of God and is shaped and guided by those true views of God. Really hard, isn't it, to do worship if you're theologically just not on the same page as a staff? Just so hard. I, we, we, I've been here for 30 years. It took 10 years to persuade this church that there should be elders. And so we created a council of elders in 1990, 10 years after I got here. I came believing that's the way a church should be governed by elders. I'm, I'm a congregationalist, but under congregational affirmation, there is governance by the elders. I think that's rational and doable took another 10 years, and I didn't even think this would ever happen, another 10 years for those elders to coalesce around a very rigorous reformed theology, put it on paper, put it to the people, and ask the people by vote of constitutional revision to make them believe it. Miracle. It happened in the year 2000. Took 20 years, and now 37 elders and these three worship leaders and I are theologically on the same page. The freedom that gives us. I don't, I don't even think about these guys and what they're going to do anymore. 
When, when, when we sing songs, I never say, where did they get that stupid idea? Yeah, where did that come from? Like, what? It doesn't happen. I'm thankful for you guys. Big time. It's a sweet thing. Because you have to worship in truth. And uh, that means true views of God. And they're going to be reflected in your lyrics, your preaching. Going to be reflected in the, the way you use text, the way you pray. It's just, it's just all over the services how you view God. So what Jesus does is, um, what Jesus has done is to break decisively the necessary connection between worship and its outward and localized associations. He breaks that connection. It is mainly something inward and free from locality. It is what he meant when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. When the heart is far from God, worship is vain, empty, non-existent. The experience of the heart is the defining, vital, indispensable essence of worship. That's my thesis. Why then is the central Old Testament word for worship, proskuneo, virtually boycotted by Peter, James, John, and Paul in the letters that they write? It's only in the Gospels and only in Revelation with any prevalence at all. And here's my attempt at an answer. The word proskuneo, having translated histahava in the Old Testament 164 times, almost all of them carried too much of that from the Old Testament. The word did not make clear enough the inward spiritual nature of worship. It carried significant connotations of place and form. The word was associated with bodily bowing down and with actual presence of a visible manifestation to bow down before. So it is prevalent in the Gospels and Revelation where Jesus is physically present and uh, to the worshipers, but in the epistles, Jesus is not present in visible glory to fall before. Therefore, the whole tendency of the early church was to deal with worship as primarily an inward spiritual rather than an outward and bodily and primarily pervasive rather than localized. So the, the explanation for why it's 26 times in the Gospels, 21 times in the book of Revelation, and almost non-existent in the epistles is Jesus was here in the body here, he's here in the body here. You can fall down. If, if Jesus walked into this room, I'd fall down. I'd call that fall worship. I think it would be. And all the trembling that would go with it, that'd be worship. But he's not here. And notice, I'm standing. Am I worshiping? I hope so. My heart is leaping with these truths. I just love being able to talk about him with you. But if he walked in, I'd be down. So he's there in the Gospels. He's there in Revelation. He's in heaven here. And therefore, worship goes inward, not to form. Now, to confirm this, consider what Paul does to some of the other words related to Old Testament worship. Latruo, used uh, 90 times. Uh, let's see. The next most frequent word for worship in the Old Testament after proskuneo is the word latruo. 
in the Greek Old Testament, 90 times, always translating abad, which is usually translated serve, as in uh, Exodus 23, 24. You shall not worship their gods or serve them. And that would be translated latruo in the Greek Old Testament. Now, when Paul uses that word for Christian worship, he goes out of his way to make sure that we know he means not a localized and outward form of worship practice, but a non-localized spiritual experience. In fact, he takes it so far as to treat virtually all of life, all of life, as worship when lived in the right spirit. Romans 1.9, he says, I serve God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. So, Anywhere I go, standing on any corner, in any city, lifting up my voice to proclaim the gospel, I'm doing latruo. You don't have to go to the temple. Or Philippians 3.3, Paul says that true Christians worship God in the spirit of God. And there's latruo, worship God in the spirit of God and put no confidence in the flesh. Or Romans 12.1, Paul urges Christians to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, your latria, or however it's uh, translated. I mean, whatever the word is there. The whole of life, body and all, is this word. So he strips it of its ritualistic, localized meaning. The language of temple, sacrifice priestly service. What does he do with those? The praise and thanks of the lips is called sacrifice to God. So praising is called sacrifice, not animals, but so are good works in everyday life. Paul calls his own ministry priestly service of worship. He calls the converts themselves an acceptable offering. He even calls the money that the churches send him a fragrant aroma and acceptable sacrifice to God. And his own death for Christ, he calls a drink offering to God. So you see what he's doing? He's taking all this cultic, priestly, temple worship language and stripping it of services and forms and uh, place and time. And he's applying it to all of Christian ministry and all of, of life. Same thrust is seen in the imagery of the people of God uh, in the New Testament, the temple, where spiritual sacrifices are offered and where God dwells by his spirit, namely in us, the temple, where all the people see as the holy priesthood, are seen as the holy priesthood. Second Corinthians 6.16 shows that the new covenant hope of God's presence is being fulfilled even now in the church as the people of God. We are the temple of the living God. We are the temple. So Jesus is the temple in one sense, and now God inhabits us as a corporate entity, and the church is the temple. Worship is being significantly deinstitutionalized, delocalized, deexternalized. The whole thrust is being taken off of ceremony and seasons, and places, and forms, and is being shifted to what is happening in the heart. Not just on Sunday, 
but every day and in all of life. So he goes on, and I think I'll probably not read all of this. All of life to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Singing and making melody to the Lord. So here we get a little glimpse into some things that were done when they got together. Singing and making melody to the Lord. Even when Paul calls us to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, there's the horizontal dimension, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Okay? This is by directional to one another to the lord it's not worship if you separate those it's not corporate worship making melody with your heart just no mere form here always giving thanks for all things in the name of our lord jesus christ even um, christ to god to god even the Father. There's no reference to a time or place or service. In fact, the key word is always. Although I think a service is implied here or some kind of togetherness. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of Jesus. This may, in fact, be what we should do in a corporate worship service, but it is not Paul's burden to tell us that. His burden is to call for a radical inward authenticity of worship. Do it from your heart. Do it to the Lord. All-encompassing pervasiveness of worship in all of life. Place and form are not of the essence. Almost through with this first unit. Second unit, I guess it is. Reformed and Puritan tradition. They saw that worship is radically oriented on the experience of the heart with little emphasis on form and place. This quote from John Calvin blows certain people away. I quoted this at a Puritan reform conference about 20 years ago, and and a big crowd assembled around me like Daniel in the lion's den. Where's that quote? Well, I didn't give it. Here it is. Here it is. Don't, don't crowd me. No. There it is. The master, this is John Calvin talking now. The master did not will in outward discipline and ceremonies to prescribe in detail what we ought to do because he foresaw that this depended on the state of the times, and he did not deem one form suitable for all ages, because he has taught nothing specifically, and because these things are not necessary to salvation, and for the upbuilding of the church ought to be variously accommodated to the customs of each nation and age, it will be fitting as the age of the church will require, I'm sorry, as the advantage of the church will require to change and abrogate traditional practices and to establish new ones. Indeed, I admit that we ought to charge 
we ought not to charge into innovation rashly, suddenly, for insufficient cause, but love will best judge what may hurt or edify, and if we let love be our guide, all will be safe. Well, maybe not safe, Um, but I think that is amazing coming from Calvin, and because we think of the Reformed tradition as being really tight with their traditions, and uh, some people, it seems to me, have institutionalized the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, as though it is It is the way to worship. That's the way it has been done for, yay, many, what, four or five centuries. Well, maybe, you know, maybe. But the New Testament, I mean, these are amazing statements. God did not will in outward discipline ceremonies to prescribe in detail what we ought to do. Because he has taught nothing specifically. Whoa, you sure you want to say that? Because these things are not necessary. Now, um, one more comment about culture. My way of saying why God didn't teach us more specifically about what to do when we get together is because the New Testament is a church handbook for the nations, all of them. Had he said anything about organs or instruments or length of service or time of service or order of service or what you sit on or where you meet or anything of the dozens of things you have to decide on when you do church, had he been specific the Bible just couldn't have run and be so infinitely translatable as it is. The Bible is not like the Koran. The Koran's not translatable because God spoke Arabic. And I was really helped by somebody pointing out to me that if you try to relate the Bible with the Koran and Christ with God, you miss it. In, in the comparing the two religions, Christ corresponds to the Koran. The Koran is the incarnation of the Word of God. It can't be touched. If you have a translation, you don't have the real deal. Jesus Christ comes into the world as a specific man, and he says, it's better for me to go back to the Father. I'll send the Spirit, and I'll give you a book. The book will have very little detail in it, and you translate it into every language on the planet. And it will be my word in every language on the planet. It's amazing. Christianity is almost infinitely culturally adaptable because of, of what Calvin said and, and because of how little we are told. It, it frustrates the daylights out of us because we'd, we'd like some specific guidance from God as to whether that instrument is somehow preferable to this instrument or, or, or the organ. Or, or flute, or all the glorious instrument God has let us make. Um, but you're not going to find that in the Bible. 
It's not going to be there. Love and wisdom. Luther, typically, putting his foot in his mouth. The worship of God should be free at table, in the private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, by all people at all times. Whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. (laughs) Don't you just love that guy? Just go home and repent every day. There's a lot of freedom there, though, isn't there, in his mind about worship. Free at table, in private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, all people. The Puritans carried through the simplification and freedom of worship in music and liturgy and architecture. Patrick Collingson summarizes Puritan theory and practice by saying, the life of the Puritan was in one sense a continuous act of worship pursued under an unremitting and lively sense of God's providential purposes and constantly refreshed by religious activity, personal, domestic, and public. All of life is worship. One of the reasons Puritans called their churches meeting houses and kept them very simple was to divert attention from physical place to the inward spiritual nature of worship. This room is um, a compromise. Some people walk into this room and they say, simple, really simple. Others walk in, they say, whoa, those trusses, you know. Oh. And there's, there's supposed to be anyway a Puritan simplicity about this room. Had I had my way, which I didn't, It would have been a flat floor and a basketball goal there and a basketball goal there. But I didn't win that one. We won't talk about that anymore. I I like this room a lot. I like the acoustics and I like the the vaulted ceiling. It does say something. Cost us about $4 million back in those days. And uh, I don't know how to reckon the price of such things. Um, oh, there's one more thing to say about the Puritans. They, they take a rap of their you know, iconoclast. They're going to smash all the, you know, all the pictures and take all the pictures out of the windows and smash all the, the statues and everything. And I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic with that. Um, but a lot of people draw a straight line from being an ecclesiastical iconoclast. That is, Sunday morning, stripped this room of statues and pictures as though that meant anti-art. A lot of people go there. They just draw a straight line and say, oh, you're going to knock all the statues down, punch out all the beautiful stained glass windows, and put no symbols anywhere except maybe a cross in the middle and a pulpit standing in the center. Um, Then you clearly don't believe in art. You don't believe in sculpture. You don't believe in drama. You don't believe in uh, music except for your simple non-musical songs on Sunday morning. And the Puritans, I think, would say, well, let's just not say the Puritans. Let's say Abraham Kuyper would say. Abraham Kuyper would say, you, you divest, the church is a sphere along with business, along with art, 
along with education, along with government, and along with family. And in each of those spheres, there's a kind of sphere sovereignty with each one having its unique calling that isn't church and church isn't that. And he would say, over here, arts should flourish. But people who are constantly trying to drive them into worship services, in fact, are limiting what they should be. Drive them into worship services. Got to have drama in worship. Got to have every kind of music in worship. Got to have paintings in worship. Got to do everything. No, because there is a sphere, at least in, in that reformed wing, there, there are spheres of life. And, and why not, if, if you want to serve the arts, and this is John Piper talking, if you want to serve the arts, I don't think the way to serve the arts is to try to pack them all in on Sunday morning. You're going to get cheap, um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, my tongue starts with E not exploit, uh, uh, um, utilitarian art. That's not the word, but that's close. It starts with an E, means utilitarian. But um, it's funny how the memory works. The memory knows how to spell things and can't remember what they are. I think that's what's going to happen. But if you say, how about those of you who are called and gifted in drama, let's say, create that. Create that. That will be. You can use the building, use it on Friday night, do it the best you can possibly do it. We'll bring in the community or whatever. Make it really good. Not just tick tack on the worship. Come on. What? That's so silly. Make it real. Make it good, deep, powerful. It be its thing. Be it what it is. Okay. Same way with visual art, same way with sculpture, same way with dance, whatever. It's, it's, it has its, its realm. Okay, enough of that. My opinion, I think probably rooted in the simplicity of Jesus, but you decide. In the New Testament, there is a stunning indifference to the outward forms and places of worship. And there is, at the same time, a radical intensification of worship as an inward spiritual experience that has no bounds and pervades all of life. These emphases were recaptured in the Reformation and came to clear expression in the Puritan wing of the Reformed tradition. Now, this is the end of this unit number two here, and the the question that it poses is, okay, If the thesis is true that worship has been really radically made inward, made focused on this experience, what is it? What is the essence of that radical, authentic, inward experience called worship? And how is it that this experience comes to expression in gathered congregations in everyday life? So that's where we go next, and we have 20 minutes to, to do some of it. We won't finish this, but we can make a good start so you know where we're, where we're going. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do another 10-second test here on to see whether there's a question just burning. And my guess is what I just said and that whole unit will elicit 45 minutes worth of questions in just 20 minutes. So if we want to keep going, we can do that. But if, if something's just popping, one... I don't want to intimidate you with my 
timer. Anybody? Okay. There you go. Yeah. Aaron. The question is, what do we have in the Bible to shape our outward form? Um, the pointers in the, in the New Testament are that there was word in the gatherings. The singing seemed to be there from Ephesians 5. Uh, those would be the two of the outward forms. Um, singing different kinds of songs. But beyond that, I think uh, we answer those questions not by what's there by way of a mandated example, but rather by the nature of God, the nature of his relationship to us, the nature of corporate life, the nature of faith. Just it's, if, if I were to write a, a book on worship that tried to warrant from the Bible all the things that we do on Sunday, it, I wouldn't trace those things that we do probably back to, well, they did it right there and so we do it. I would trace it back to, this is the way we are saved. This is the kind of response he expects. This is the way human beings are. Uh, by God's design and the way they relate to each other. These are some hints and pointers in the Bible, which, which, which you can see is just totally flexible. Like you could just shoot me down in a minute and say, well, we don't do it that way. I'd say, oh, 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 oh. I don't, I'm, I'm not making you do it that way. So I am, I am creating a lot of trouble by saying the, the there, there was a blog post the other day. I didn't read it yet. I saw the title. I think it said something like, the Bible has more to say than we think it does about the way we worship. Like that. So this is a person kind of foreseeing what I'm saying here and pushing back on it. And uh, that's fine. I, I would be really happy if you pointed me to places that say, uh, you should do these things. I think I could make a really strong case for preaching. <laughs> and singing. That's about all. And then if you say, well, what would be the content of the singing? I'd say, well, it should be prayer, you know, sing to the Lord. And what are the things you need to say to the Lord? Like, thank you, and I praise you, and I'm sorry, and please guide me. But about those four things. Okay. There'll be more questions later, I'm sure. What is it? If, if I'm on the right track, that, that hishtahava proskuneo, with all of the outward associations and all of the um, ceremonial dimensions is ended by Jesus, and instead he drives it in to the heart as an experience then what is that experience? And so here's my new second thesis. The essential, vital, indispensable, defining heart of worship is the experience of being satisfied with God or being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. 
This satisfaction in God magnifies God in the heart. This explains why the Apostle Paul makes so little distinction between worship as a congregational service and worship as a pattern of daily life. They have the same root. That is, they are worship for the same reason. Singing, or maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. They have the same root, a passion for treasuring God as infinitely valuable. The impulse for singing a hymn and the impulse for visiting a prisoner is the same. A deep, freeing satisfaction in God now and a thirst for all that God promises to be for us in Christ. So I'm arguing that Washing the dishes at home in the sink is worship for the same reason that preaching or singing is worship. It comes from that kind of heart. I am resting in God, satisfied in God, delighting in God, and what I'm doing with now with my voice in church or with my hands in the sink is an expression of my satisfaction in God, my joy in God, my desire to extend that into the lives of the people and magnify my own joy in their joy in God. And that's one of the reasons it's so satisfying to me to talk this way about it because it does give such unity to the worship language of the New Testament. The question is, is it biblical? The root of our passion and the thirst for God is God's own infinite exuberance for God. So I'm arguing now that the root of this definition, the root of this being satisfied with God as the essence of worship, is God's own satisfaction with God, God's passion and thirst for God, God's exuberance for God. And I, my, I don't know if you seen all these. I've, I've worked my way through these texts in so many different places. They're in, I don't, I don't know how many books that are out there, but I'll just briefly point to it. God creates for his glory. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom, who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God made you to make him look good. He made you to make him look glorious. You exist to make God look like he really is glorious. He elects Israel for his glory. I made the whole house of Israel cling to me, the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a name, a praise, and a glory. So I chose Israel that they might be my glory in the world. God saved them from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. He saved them for his namesake, that he might not, that he might make known his power. So just, I, I wish, I hope that you feel the significance of this. These things clobbered me in 1968, 69, 70, 71. They just clobbered me, turned my world upside down, that God is God-centered, that God does everything for the glory of God, that God is passionate for the glory of God. I'd never thought that way before. And then I saw 
dozens and dozens and dozens of Bible passages that point to it. And I, I pause here to say it because if it gets you, everything else is going gonna, gonna to fall into place worship-wise. At least everything that I care about. Forms won't fall into place, but, but what matters will fall into place. You will become a radically God-centered person because you will get on board with God's view of God. It won't seem arbitrary when he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. He says, join me. I do everything for my glory. Join me in this. God restrains his anger for the glory of God. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profane? My glory, I will not give to another. And he sends Christ into the world for his glory. Christ became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness to the Jews and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He came to get glory by showing mercy. He'd come a second time for glory. Those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified in the saints, to be marveled at. Our calling is to manifest the worth of the glory of God in this world. Declare his glory among the nations. Praise the Lord, all nations. So, some, God's overflowing joy in his own glory is the root and the basis of ours. God is so exuberant about his glory that he makes it its display the goal of all that he does, and therefore, so should we. That's the foundation of worship. Now, putting it that way doesn't quite get to the heart of the matter. To get to the heart of the matter, we need to ask why it is a loving thing for God to be so self-exalting, and why, if we come to share his satisfaction in himself, it is the essence and heart of worship. Um, Let me pause here with a a few illustrations of how critical this is. I've got, my file on this is just growing all the time. It starts way back in, uh, what's the date on this paper? About 10 years ago or so. This is the Financial Times from London. Uh, Michael Prowse. Worship is an aspect of religion I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants puffed up with pride crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? For for him, the text that I just read make God a moral monster. He's an egomaniac which is exactly what 
uh, in 2009, uh, Terry Gross on the American, um, uh, what, what's her program, uh, Fe- Fresh Air, um, she interviewed Eric Rees, who had just written a book entitled An American Gospel, in which he says, who is this egomaniac speaking these words? After quoting uh, Matthew 10, 34, that you must love me more than you love mother or father. And she asks him, did you mean to write that? Do you mean to call Jesus an egomaniac? And he said, well, it just struck me as, who is this person? A complete historical stranger saying that we should love him, who we really are incapable of emotionally loving, more than we should love our own fathers and sons. It just seemed like an incredibly egoman, whatever that word is, egomaniacal kind of claim to make. So here, so you got Michael Prowse in the Financial Times saying, what is this thing called worship and a God who demands it and says he's the greatest thing in the world? And what is this Jesus who's saying, you've got to love me more than you love your own mother or father? They're just a bunch of egomaniacs talking. And then you got Brad Pitt. You ever heard of him? Brad Pitt. So he's writing in, the, in, in Parade. Uh, what's the date on this? I didn't write it down. Several, about four years ago, I think. Um, I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, then you don't get it. It just seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. So there's a whole stream. Don Carson, who said a while back, he said, the questions that students ask on campus nowadays when he does missions, as he calls them, are very different. And he said, 30 years ago, they wanted arguments for the resurrection, the objective truth of the resurrection. Prove it, prove it. Today, they ask this question. God's an egomaniac by demanding worship. So what do you say about that? This is not a small thing that, that we're into right here. Is God loving when he is so self-exalting? That's, that's huge because so many people, they read their Bibles and just intuitively they hear God doing things for his own glory all the time, everywhere in the Bible, and they conclude just megalomania, just egomaniac. And as I struggled with that back in those critical years, C.S. Lewis pointed me first, and then Jonathan Edwards did, to an answer. And here's what he says. The most obvious fact about praise, and he had just talked about his own stumbling. He said that the command for praise in the Psalms sounded to him like an old woman needing compliments. That's what he said about God's demand for praise. So you got Michael Prowse, Brad Pitt, Eric Reese, and C.S. Lewis, all of them stumbling over the Bible's words about God's self-exaltation. And here's what he said. The most obvious fact about praise strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. 
Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, indeed what we cannot help doing, oops, too fist, about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes. And that word was the answer. That was the answer. Everything fell together when I saw that word. Not only, praise not only expresses, but completes the enjoyment of the thing praised. It is its appointed consummation it is not out of compliment that the lovers, that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. If that's true, and it is, then what is God doing when he, the most infinitely praiseworthy being in the universe, demands that we praise him. Answer, he's bringing our joy to its fullest consummation. Which means he's loving us. God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the most loving thing to do. If you try to imitate in him, and this is why these guys are stumbling, they're translating God's demand into our demand. If I were to say to you right now, I want you all to praise me. Would you all stand up, please? And uh, sing praise to John Piper. You'd look at one another briefly, and then you would either um, laugh or you'd walk out. Rightly so. Why? If God can do that. Answer, the way I love you is by pointing you to him because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is endless joy. If I direct your attention to me, I'm not loving you. I'm diverting you from your source of joy. But if God calls you to attend to him. He's inviting you to the spring of life. He's inviting you to the place of infinite happiness. Saying it reverently, God is stuck with being glorious. If he's going to love you, he's got to give you himself as your best gift. He's got to invite you to himself. This is what people hate if they don't want a God. It's just so manifestly obvious when you think about it. If there's a God and he is infinitely perfect in every regard, then the most loving way for him to be is not to shield himself in some mock humility. Oh, I can't let you see me in my glory because that would be so proud of me. That's hellish. 
No, come. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price. Me, I'm the water, Jesus says. Yes, if you want to call that egomaniacal, I just feel so bad for you. It's love is what it is. It's love. And maybe the way to wrap this up in one minute uh, we'll, we'll start right here tomorrow, is, is with uh, my favorite granola bar advertisement and my favorite Arlo and Janice cartoon. And the point of closing with these two little pointers is that the world has this written on their heart. They do. They know that they are not made to be God. God is made to be God. They are made to be small, and their joy doesn't come ultimately from feeling big, but in knowing big, seeing big, enjoying big, outside themselves. So here's, here's the... Maybe I can even show it. Here's... Well, not so good, but too much reflection, but... Um, there's the mountain, and that's really a beautiful picture, believe it or not. Um, this mountain has a man sitting there, and there's another guy right there. They've climbed up this rock face, and his arms are stretched out like he's got ropes in one arm like this. And he, this, if you could see it, it's just a magnificent Yosemite uh, vista of mountains. And this is selling Nature Valley Trail Mix fruit and nut granola bars. There they are, granola bars. Now, if you were sitting in a boardroom and you wanted to commend granola bars to the world and have them buy them, what, what would you say? How would you get inside their stomach and their mind and want well, to buy these things? Look at this headline. You've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. What advertising agency is this? <laughs> they're putting their heads together saying, now what will really appeal is creating a, a, a collective sense of insignificance. <laughs> this is what people really want. They want to feel insignificant because when they feel insignificant, they're happiest. That's true. That's true. In the presence of God in the Grand Canyon, it's true. But who sells granola bars that way? Some (laughs) smuggled in Christian over there at General Mills. I met him. He goes to this church, I think. Maybe he's in the room here. His name is Chris. Okay, so what I'm saying is the world is not ignorant of what we're talking about. Wherever that came from, in, this, this is from National Geographic magazine. Okay. Wherever that came from, you could talk to that person about this talk tonight. 
And they would be able to at least tie in in some way to what I'm saying. That when God goes big and makes sure he's seen as big and we are made small, seeing, magnificent, big, that's good for us. That's what this is saying. So they get that. And so does Arlo and Janice. These little, are they Norwegian or Swedes or what are they? I don't know. Okay, they have, I, there's my little filing system there. So here, here they are. It's nighttime. I love this because what have they been married? About 43 years maybe? It's so quiet, he says. And she says, yes, yes. And he says, hey. Pause, quiet. They leave. Ever notice the best moments make you feel insignificant? Sweetie. How's she going to feel about that, you know? Where'd you get that idea? That's true. They're out. It's a magnificent uh, snowfall come down. It's quiet and big and it's pure. And and we're so little and so good. Worship isn't helping people feel big. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. It, it isn't helping people feel big. It's helping people see an all-satisfying bigness outside themselves called all that God is for them in Jesus. Let me pray. We'll take a break. Do the Q&A. Pick it up tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Father in heaven, whatever I've said that is truly an echo of your word, confirm it. And if anything has been amiss, correct it, I pray, and awaken in us a sense of your grandeur that would make us better worshipers and better lead worshipers, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.